This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. The Hockey News Podcast is back. It's Matt Larkin here with Ken Campbell and Ryan Kennedy. It's been a fun week in the hockey world. We've got crazy comparisons for Elias Pettersson. We've got the Hall of Fame inductions that just went down. It was a great week for Gary Bettman in more ways than one. Not only did he get to give the longest speech probably in Hall of Fame history, but he had a nice week when it came to the concussion lawsuit, and that's our first hot topic of the day. A settlement is reached with the ex-players in the NHL. And it's $19 million total, which amounts to about $22,000 per player. Uh, guys, I, I'm not a legal expert. I don't profess to be. You play I'm, one on TV, though. I play yeah. one on TV. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Order. Uh, that would be a judge, actually. But I'm a bit confused. To me, this looks like a horrible settlement for the players. What happened? Can you explain it to me? As I'm the layman here. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll do my best because, like you, I'm not a lawyer. Oh, yeah. But... Here's, here's what I've been able to glean. I think that this thing went sideways in a couple of ways. First of all, the first problem was that I think when this whole thing started, the, they thought that the class action was going to involve a lot more players, probably three times the number of players it involved. They, they thought it was going to get into the thousands of players. It was 318. So that's not, that's not a huge... That's not a huge group for a class action lawsuit. And I think the second thing, and, and the, in, from what I've been able to gather, the death knell for this whole thing was the ruling by the Minnesota judge in July that it wasn't going to get class action status. And um, it wasn't because of they didn't believe the case didn't have merit. It, was, it had all kinds of jurisdictional issues and all those other things. This was the best settlement they could get, and that's why they settled for it. The problem is, is that, is that when, when you do a class action, the law firms are the ones that take on the risk, right? So they're the ones putting in the resources. They're the ones who are putting up the money. In fact, you even have um, private venture companies that will put up money for law firms to do this in the hope that they'll get a return. And everybody was looking at this and going, we're not going to get our money back. The NHL can bleed this for years and years and years. And I thought Gary Bettman played this 100% uh, you know, you know, right out of the playbook. He, at, at every turn, he never, ever, once, ever said that there's any evidence of uh, of, a, of a link between head injuries and and CTE and things like dementia and things like that. And when he did that, he never gave the other side any ammunition whatsoever. Played this perfectly, and this is the way it's turned out. Yeah, and I think that goes with a lot of things when you're dealing with Gary Bettman, where if you take your shot, you better not miss because you know that he has done his homework. You know Absolutely. that he is a lawyer by trade, and he knows the system, he knows how to play it, and you, you just have to come with everything, and you have to make sure that all your ducks are in a row, you have to make sure you have everything in. And I think part of the problem with this whole issue is that we're still learning so much about concussions. And I would imagine that in a legal setting, things like that need to be precise. And at this point, we, we, say, we say we know there's a link. We, we, we say we know so much about concussions, but even the people in the industry that are trying to solve these problems are still working on the mechanics of concussions, what the problems are, exactly how these things work, you know, why some are 
a couple of days, some are months. And I, I, I would presume that in a legal setting, that's difficult. Right, it is difficult. But I, I, I would argue too that there's, okay, so, so maybe, you know, maybe we don't know these things, but we know something's wrong. Okay, we know something's wrong. We know players are getting their in brains injured and it's affecting them later in life. We, we know that. There's, that's yeah. indisputable. Yeah. And so I think what's going to happen now is, 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 is I don't think people should think that the NHL is off the hook here because they're not. Right. You know, Dan Carcillo has already said, it's not about the money. It's not, I want my day in court. And Mike Peluso is another guy, I think, who I believe has said, you know what? I'm going to p pursue this to the end because I want my day in court. I would assume the, the estate of Steve Montador, uh, you know, his father will pursue this. So there's still going to be uh, maybe a trickle, maybe a stream, maybe a flood of of individual cases that come up and that it will take years and years to resolve. But this is not over. And I would almost say that a person like Carcillo or Peluso has a better chance in court because they can get into specifics of their case. When exactly. You, when you have this big amorphous group, you can have all sorts of different symptoms and timelines, but with, with those guys, they can say, yeah, you know, I was in a fight, I was sent back, or you know, I blacked out on the bench, right. and they sent me back out the next shift. That's the sort of thing that, that specificity, I think, uh, is a lot more damning than a group that says we have similar symptoms, we played at different times, yep. but we all feel we're in the same grouping. I just think it wasn't the right strategy. Fair. And I'm reminded actually of a conversation I had with Dr. Bennett Umalu, who's sort of credited with discovering CTE. Will Smith played him in the movie Concussion. And he explained to me last year that these paradigm shifts in terms of evidence and also just the general cultural acceptance of concussions, he compared it to uh, the Ringling Brothers Circus and animal cruelty. As, as he said to me, it took 50 years to finally shut down the Ringling Brothers Circus. So right. he believes it's going to be 50 years before we finally have a proper understanding yeah. of concussions and maybe before there's enough evidence that the NHL will, will finally uh, have to take responsibility. Um, switching over to the trade rumor mill, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, William Nylander, any time now. Uh, there are about two weeks left until the deadline, after which he cannot play for any NHL team in 2018-19. So what I want from you guys right now are predictions. Will we see William Nylander traded in the next couple weeks? Will he sign a long-term deal? Will he sign a bridge deal? Or will he sit out the entire season a la Le'Veon Bell in Pittsburgh and play for nobody? What do you think? Um, well, you're asking for a prediction because I, a prediction. I don't because I don't think yeah. anybody knows. I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen here, and I think anybody who says that they know what's going to happen is 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 kind of just talking off the top of their head, mm -hmm. which is exactly what I'm doing here now. I, I think I think William Nylander is going to end up being frozen out for the season. I, I really do think that's what's going to happen. I think that's where it's come to, and I think the Toronto Maple Leafs have come to the realization that they've got a pretty good team. There is no really, there's no urgency here to make a trade from their from their side of the from their side of the ledger here. There's there's really, you know, I mean, they've they've they have what they have. They have a good team. They have a Stanley Cup contending team. Yes, they could use a couple of pieces, but you know, in a trade like this, if you're forced to trade the guy, you are not going to get equal value back. If they trade him now, they might get a second pair defenseman and a third liner. Like that, that's, yeah. that's kind of where you're at. And do they really, do they really need that? Is that going to help? Is that going to, is that going to push them any, is that going to push the needle any further towards them contending for a Stanley Cup? I would argue no. I, I would think the Leafs just say, hey, 
you know, we tried, we offered you your money, you don't want it, you're going to have to sit for a year and you're going to have to, and that year is, is not going to be a year accrued towards unrestricted free agency and all those sorts of other things. So I think that's where this is headed. Yeah, I, I would say freeze as well. And, and you're right. When you look at some of the names that are being bandied about as trade partners, they're saying, okay, well, Carolina would maybe give up Brett Pesci, but not Jacob Slavin. It's like, well, wait a minute. If you're trading William Nylander, you want Jacob Slavin. Yeah. Florida apparently is saying no to Mike Matheson. It's like, wait a minute. You wouldn't give up Mike Matheson for William Nylander? If you're Kyle Dubas, not only do you need to get fair value here, but you also have to think big picture. He's a young GM, you know, fairly new on the job. He has a Mitch Marner contract coming up. He has an Austin Matthews contract coming up. He can't show weakness in terms of bargaining with his own players or making trades with other GMs. I mean, really, you know, he's worked with Lou Lamorello, and that worked out pretty well for him early in the season. Um, but you can't have him losing hand, losing face, however you want to describe it, this early in his tenure. And I think he's very cognizant of that. He's a very smart guy. He realizes that this is bigger than just William Nylander. This is something that's going to affect his entire roster right. in the long term. And he's, he was also the guy that said that they were going to sign all three of these guys. Mm -hmm. He was the guy that said that. And mm -hmm. now, you know, with Mitch Marner, you know, his value going up, almost with every game that he plays. I mean, I, I think Matthews is, you know, Matthews is, is, is going to get what he's going to get. And that, that's, it's either going to be, they're going to have to match an offer sheet or they're going to have to pay big money. But I think Marner is kind of the, the whole wild card in this thing mm. in, in as much as what's he worth? Is he worth 10? Right. Is he worth more than 10? Mm. I mean, th th that pass he made on the first goal of Nazem Kadri, I would argue there's, one or two players <laughs> that can make that pass yeah. in the NHL. The, th the only thing I disagree about is the urgency. I think there's absolutely urgency in a cap era, and the fact that the Leafs are Stanley Cup contenders means they need to take their shot, and I don't mean by trading Nylander. I suggest, and I predict, we'll see an 11th hour one-year deal. Just sign Nylander for the rest of this year mm. and try again in the summer. You cannot go an entire year and don't get anything for Nylander or have Nylander in the lineup. I think that's an absolute disaster and a massive failure for the Toronto Maple Leafs if that happens. You must take your shot. You have a contending team. You have one of the best teams in the NHL, and you need to add an elite, talented piece to your lineup, even if it is Nylander and not a trade. You can't leave him on the sidelines. See, it I, literally cost him a Stanley Cup. See, I, 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 don't agree. I, don't, I don't agree, Matt, because he brings more of what they have. If he were, if he were a second, if he were a number two defenseman sitting out right now, if he were a Jacob Truba or a Chris Tanev or whatever, I would say, yeah, absolutely. Mm. But this is not a team that needs more offense. This is do, do the Leafs or do the Leafs not? Do they or do they not have a depth problem in their lineup right now? We know that Marner's scoring, Tavares is scoring. Mm. Do they have a depth problem? Are the bottom two lines scoring? No, but he's not going to be on the bottom exactly. two lines Exactly. He's going to push everyone else yeah. down the line. Yeah, yeah. He's going to fix the Leafs' depth problem. You cannot leave William Nylander on the sidelines. I disagree. You. you can leave William Nylander no, on the sidelines. No. You absolutely <laughs> can. Listen to live, boys. Uh, interesting, in the hype department, it doesn't get much bigger than when Wayne Gretzky says, you remind me of me. And that's what Wayne Gretzky said this week about Elias Pettersson. He has been spectacular this year. Amazing dangles, passing his electric shot. We all thought he'd be good. I think we all picked him to win the Calder Trophy, but he's been even better than we expected. And Wayne Gretzky, on the record, says this week he enjoys making comparisons. He doesn't have a problem with it. And he says that Pedersen sometimes reminds him of him. What do you think of that comparison? Is that fair 
to put that label on Pedersen? And is Pedersen already a superstar? I, I have a unique take on this. I think Wayne Gretzky is right to say Elias Pedersen reminds him, him of himself because if Wayne Gretzky played in 2018, he would be Elias Pedersen. Mm. You think about the frame. <sighs> yeah. You think about how much better the game is now, how much more competitive it is, how much better the goaltenders are than when Gretzky played. I think that's, that's an apt comparison. It, it sounds crazy because it's Wayne Gretzky, best player of all time. But in terms of the style and the impact that he could have on a team, you have to think about the progression and the evolution of the game. I think it's, it's apt. It's just it's hard to wrap your head around because we all know how dominant Gretzky was in his day. But if you had a time machine and put Elias Pettersson on the 84 Oilers, I think you'd have very similar results. He's not a superstar after 15 games. Not yet. <laughs> he's, not, he's not a superstar. No. He's an incredibly talented player. He's doing some amazing things. But, I mean, come on. There's, there's got to be a, there's gotta be something of a resume built up before yeah. we can start calling a guy that a superstar. That was verbal clickbait. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Wayne Gretzky comparing Elias Pettersson to himself. Uh, with all due respect, I think Wayne sometimes knows the right thing to say about the right topics yeah. and uh, he knows how to let's say generate buzz and headlines and that sort of thing and i think he knows when he says something like this that it's going to do that mm-hmm. i i i mean i i i see elias Pettersson as more of a pavel datsik type of player than a wayne gretzky type of player which is still incredible yeah. obviously um but Let's pump the brakes a little bit. I, I, yeah. I'm just thinking maybe because we have a tendency to do this. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, we have a tendency to do this when we see a guy do something in a very short period of time, which is not to say he won't do it over a long period of time. But, I mean, Wayne Gretzky never had a bad year until very late in his career. I mean, Elias Pettersson could have a bad year next year. He could have a bad year in year three. You know, so let's, let's kind of let's pump the brakes a little bit. Although, to just to rev the hype machine back up a little bit, it looks like he's going to beat Henrik Sedin's career high in goals by, I don't know, the All-Star break. So just chew on that little mm. nugget. Some more nuggets for you, Fantasy Insider Nuggets. First pickup of the week I want you to look at is Andrei Svechnikov in Carolina. We know he's super talented, comparisons by some to Vladimir Tarasenko. Second overall pick, great shooter, great goal scorer coming out of junior. And he's off to a bit of a slow start, but I'm asking you as fantasy owners to speculate. He's free right now, and you know the talent is there. And if you look at the underlying numbers, he is getting the chances. The chances are there. And you know a talented player like that, it's only a matter of time before he rises up the lineup, starts getting more opportunities. So I would just grab him on spec if you have the room on your roster, and you will not regret it. If it's a keeper league, then he shouldn't be available at all. That would be a travesty, so absolutely go run to get him in that case. Second pickup of the week is Mr. Controversy. Tom Wilson is surprisingly back in the lineup. Uh, and we know he's very valuable in fantasy leagues that have hits or penalty minutes. And it's usually going to be the case he's going to be on the top line with Kuznetsov and Alexander Ovechkin. And even if you don't like him in real life, even if he's controversial, there's no denying what he brings, especially in those multi-category fantasy leagues. He's a valuable pick. The 
third pick, and this is the one that really has me scratching my head. So I promise I'm always going to recommend guys who are available in at least 50% of Yahoo leagues. And Jaden Schwartz, his ownership tag is down around 46%, which to me is crazy. I know he's off to a terrible start, and we always have to worry about his health. Jaden Schwartz is injury prone. It's usually only a matter of time before his next injury, but that doesn't matter when he's literally free on 54% of waiver wires. You have to go get him because he has the upside to produce at a point-per-game rate for stretches of 40, 50 games at a time, and that's the kind of player that wins you a pool. It's not your first-round pick. It's the guy that you get later or off the waiver wire who produces like a second or third-round pick. So go get Jaden Schwartz. Okay, I'm a little confused here because I don't play the fantasy uh, those those fantasy leagues like you do. But so Tom Wilson is available in a lot of leagues right now. He's like available. people well, people would not have picked him off the hop at a at a low price. Like if I'm if I were drafting at the beginning of the year before the season started, I would have bought low on Tom Wilson because right. you know you thought he was going to miss 20 games at the mm. time, well, but you thought he'd come back and and be what he's he's being, which is which is a truculent goal-scoring guy. He has first game back. He had a goal in seven penalty minutes. So I, I don't know. I, I would, as a fantasy owner, I would have picked him like right off the hop. Yes, and I think a lot of people did. But what happened was, let's say your team's in last place. You've been struggling ah, for okay. a month, and you're like, you know, I, I can't hang on to Tom Wilson any longer. I need to drop him. And pick right. Up okay. Rising okay. star guy. Right? Okay. So okay. that's what happened. He got dropped because of the suspension, ah. and that's an opportunity for teams that can afford to pick him up. So well, thanks for thanks for that. I appreciate no problem, that, buddy. The no more problem. you know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> now it's time for Future Watch. Mr. Ryan Kennedy, give me two prospects. All right, let's start off with the 2019 draft. Bowen Byram from the WHL Vancouver Giants. Also most likely to be called Byron Bowen at some point by somebody. Uh, we know it's going to happen probably on draft day. But Bowen Byram, a uh, really fantastic talent. Could be the very first defenseman off the board this year. I think Cam York is probably a good competition for that. But Byram's got some decent size, uh, great offensive skills package. This is the kind of guy that can rush the puck. He's not afraid to go deep in the offensive zone if he thinks he has an opportunity. And he's playing on a very good Giants team. So 14 points in 19 games for a team that could go deep in the playoffs. Uh, I, I really like the upside with Bowen Byram. I think there's a lot going on there. And as he progresses as the defenseman, he's going to be even more potent. Um, moving on to drafted players, we're going to stick on the blue line. Scott Perunovich, a favorite of uh, Ken and me, yeah. uh, playing for the University of Minnesota Duluth. As a freshman, he led them to a national championship. Now he's a sophomore. They're the number one team in the country. Once again, 14 points in his first 10 games. Uh, a St. Louis Blues draft pick and a very adept one at that, I might add. Uh, this is the modern style defenseman. He's a little bit undersized, but he can skate. He can handle the puck so well. Uh, unfortunately for Team USA, he's too old for the World Juniors right. this year. But uh, the Bulldogs are hot once again, and it's going to be a good competitive year for the Frozen Four title. But you look at Minnesota Duluth, they have a stacked blue line once again. Perunovic is on top there, and I, I can't count them out. I mean, back-to-back, -back, I think it's certainly possible with Perunovic in the lineup. And I would argue, Ryan, that, that Scott Perunovic is Exhibit A in the argument that the NHL has to raise the draft age to 19. Because he was passed over Yeah, he, well, he was passed over once. Was he not yeah. passed over twice? It might have been twice. I think he was passed over twice. Mm. But yeah. this is, I think he is Exhibit A in that argument mm. in, in terms of, you know, identifying talent. Because the year he was draft eligible, his first year draft eligible, 
he played for a, a, a USHL team that won like three games yeah, or something. Yeah, Cedar Rapids. Yeah, and yeah. he was really raw and really not ready. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then sort of things come together for him the next year. He's still not maybe ready. And then, you know, as a, as a 19 year old, he. He blossoms the way he did, played in the World Junior. I think this is exactly why the NHL wants to move the draft age to 19, to give them another year to be able to sort out who the prospects and the suspects are. Interesting. Mm. And Bowen Byram, to me, sounds like uh, an oil tycoon from 1902. Uh -huh. Bowen Byram, you know, like Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis. Don't Joe mess Boyd. with Bowen Byram. Yeah, yeah, the Byram Company. That's right. You know, it sounds old school. Byram Corps. Mm -hmm. Speaking of old school, how about that transition? Nice. We're going to talk about... Our latest special edition of the magazine, which is the top 100 goalies of all time. It's extra relevant this week because someone in the top five, Martin Brodeur, was just inducted into the Hall of Fame. I'm not going to tell you exactly where he lands in our top five because we want you to buy the magazine, hint, hint. But we know that Brodeur's in the top five, and I'll give away the other members without saying the exact order. Terry Sokchuk's in there, Dominic Hasek is in there, Jacques Plante is in there, and Patrick Waugh is in there. Uh, Ryan, I know in the issue you had an argument for why Brodeur deserves to be treated as number one. Mm -hmm. I disagree. I'm a Dominic Hasek guy. Ken, you're a Jacques Plante guy. I am. So I want us all <laughs> to make our cases. We'll start with you, Ryan, because it's Marty Brodeur's week. There you go. And I think, just look at the numbers. I'm going to point up to the scoreboard. 125 shutouts, 691 victories. Nobody has any more. Uh, for me in particular, it's the shutouts, because when I think about excellence in goaltending, a lot can happen out there in a hockey game, and you can have a really good defense in front of you, but you're always going to have penalty kills. You're always going to have shots that somehow are, are put in a bad position for you. But 125 times in the regular season, mind you, he had more in the playoffs as well. Marty Brodeur was perfect in a game, and he, ha he has everything else. He's got the Vesnas, he has the Calder, uh, he's got the Stanley Cup rings. He was an all-star many times, but it's those shutouts and that longevity where you always knew that Brodeur was going to give you a chance to have an excellent season. He had multiple years of double-digit shutouts, and I think the last time he had double-digit shutouts, he was like 37. So for continued excellence and the fact that he is on top of those leaderboards, I pick Marty Brodeur. Seriously? Yes. Seriously? Longevity? Seriously? Sustained Jacques excellence. Plante, Jacques Plante had a 927 save percentage at the age of 44. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. It's Jacques Plante for me um, only because, and, and it has nothing to do with the innovations that he brought to the game, the, you know, the mask and the playing the puck. I think to me it was the fact that he, he had the, he, he sort of had the, the foresight and the, and the courage and all that to do that, that made him such a great goaltender. I mean, if you talk to, and unfortunately most of them are gone now, if you talk to the guys that played on, that, on those 50s teams with the Canadians that led up to that Stanley Cup, okay, I'm going to tell you one thing. The Detroit Red Wings won three or four Stanley Cups in the early 50s. Picture the Los Angeles Kings circa 2012, and you've got the Detroit Red Wings. They were big, they were tough, they were punishing, and... And, and, and Jacques Plante was the guy that saw that. And he saw what was happening, that, Dickie, that, that Doug Harvey and all their defensemen were going back and they were getting pummeled. They were getting absolutely pummeled by these guys. And so what, what did Jacques Plante say? I'm going to go out and play the puck. I'm going to go out and do that. And he goes out and he starts feeding it up to these guys and they crack the code and they win five straight Stanley Cups. 
pretty darn good thing to do. I, I also believe that, you know, I mean, he's a guy that, you know, if you look at goalies in that era, they're almost like, like, you see the old pictures of them? They, they almost look like they're afraid, right? Jacques Plant was not afraid. Yeah. Jacques Plant, you know, he went out after the puck. He, 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 he attacked it. He played it. He jumped on it. And then when he realized that he was putting his face in peril, he put on the mask and, and it changed goaltending forever. So I, I think when you combine the, you know, the great play, one of five goalies to win the Hart Trophy. Um, the, you know, the, uh, the, the longevity that he had in playing in the league and in the WHA. And, you know, the, just sort of what he did for the game. I, I, don't, I think it's a no-brainer. Speaking of no-brainers, how about uh, <laughs> Mr. Dominic Hasek? Okay, I think people understand the obvious reasons why Hasek would get votes for number one. And that's, you know, he probably had the greatest peak of any goaltender in NHL history. Five Vezinas in a six-year stretch. He won, I think, six total. He won the MVP two years in a row. I don't think anybody was more unbeatable in his peak. And you think about the 98 Olympics, that was the true peak Hasek year where Canada in that shootout, you heard it in Bob Cole's voice, Brendan Shanahan, there's no chance he's scoring. No one thought that puck was going in because Hasek was that good. But it goes beyond that. And I think the most overlooked thing about Dominic Hasek is the fact that he did not become a starting goaltender in the NHL until he was 28. And if you look at what Roy yep. and Brodeur did by 28, Patrick Roy had all his Vezinas by 28. He had multiple Stanley Cups. Martin Brodeur, they all had lots of hardware and ha almost half their wins or a third of their victories by the time they were the age at which Dominic Hasek started his NHL career. And Hasek still amassed that unbelievable resume despite starting at 28. So imagine if Hasek was in the NHL by 22 or 23. How much better would his numbers be? Or if we compare Patrick Waugh and Martin Brodeur from 28 on to Hasek, they don't even have that statistical advantage anymore. Hasek yeah, is right but there they've also Yeah, but they've also got a ton more mileage on their bodies. So well, no, Hasek was I, still playing goalie. Well, yeah, I know, but he wasn't playing in the best league in the world, facing the best shooters in the world, playing 82 games a year, playing all those long playoff runs. Those guys had a lot of miles on their body, and I think you have to take that into account, too. Yeah, for sure, but I, I yeah. still think it's, it's amazing that Hasek's numbers still hold a candle to theirs, despite the fact he bloomed so late. So that's my main argument for Dominic Hasek. You can find it. You can find all of our arguments in the top 100 goalies of all time. It's a really fun issue. I hope you enjoy it. Time for a hot take from Mr. Ken Campbell. What do you have for us, Kenneth? Well, gentlemen, uh, the GMs met yesterday in Toronto, and there really wasn't a whole lot to talk about. Like, things are going pretty well. But one thing that came up was the reduction in goaltending equipment. And the, the GMs talked about it. They talked about some of these goaltenders who were coming out, the, you know, the, the Brian Elliott's, the Braden Holpies, the uh, I think there was, there was one or two others that, uh, that came out and were, were a little, um, James Reimer, I think, was another one, were, were really sort of critical of it and that sort of thing. They weren't buying it. And good for them because, you know what? The goalies gamed the system for 20 years. Goalies gamed the system for 20 years, and the pendulum swung back, and... I don't think it's swung back too far, but if a couple of guys think it has, too bad, wham, wham, they're not buying that sob story. And you know what? As someone said uh, when we were off camera, you know, these are the GMs. These are the guys whose jobs depend on, in, in a lot of cases, how good their goaltending is. They don't want to put these guys in harm's way. They don't want to see these guys get injured. You know, the goalie's been gaming the system for too long with equipment that was too big, that was designed to stop the puck, not protect them, and now it's swung back the other way. And, and, and you know, too bad. I'm sorry. But uh, you know what? You signed up to be a goalie. The puck comes at you really hard sometimes. 
and you're going to get some bruises. Mm -hmm. Sorry. And that's what Braden Holpe actually told me. We spoke last week, and he was sort of refuting the idea that every goalie's afraid for their safety. And he said, hey, I'm still not flinching. I know what I signed up for. It's my job to have rubber shot at me. That, those are his words. But what Holpe pointed out that I think is fair is when it comes to safety, he said, we keep, our stuff keeps shrinking, yet stick technology keeps getting more and more powerful. So as Holpe said, when his career began, every team had two or three guys who could wire the puck. And now every single guy in the league with the synergy sticks can absolutely fire rockets, in his opinion. So he's just worried more from the standpoint of stick technology. And he said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll shrink, we'll get a few more bruises, it's no big deal. But if we're going to do that, we need to at least put a cap on the advances in stick technology because if the sticks keep getting more powerful and the equipment keeps getting smaller, then, as Hopi put it, goalies are going to get hurt. Mm. Well, Food for I, thought. I, I guess, but, I mean, are they going to get hurt? Or... Are they just not going to be able to stop the puck as well? I mean, if it's form-fitting, if a guy's 50 pounds heavier than the other guy and six inches bigger, they shouldn't look the same. It should be form-fitting for everyone. And, and I think as long as it protects you, that's all you can ask for. And, I, I mean, you're not going to put the genie back in the bottle with, with sticks. You know, I mean, what are you going to do now? You, like, the game is faster than ever. Some people think it's too fast. What are we going to do? Go back to, you know, Wooden tube sticks. skates? Tube skates, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, skate technology is incredible, too. So... I'm not sure that that's going to happen, but it's it's worth discussing, I suppose. And, and I, I do think goalies are going to adjust. It seems like they always do. Um, and one thing Matthew Schneider of the NHLPA told me last week was, uh, you know, it didn't really matter. There are some complaints that the equipment didn't come to every goalie at the same time because all the manufacturers are different. Yeah. Some are shipping from China. But it doesn't actually matter because for goalies, it takes years, not months or weeks to get used to the equipment. And there was no way to properly test it until you were in everyday practice and game situations. That was unavoidable. Uh, but over time, because these goalies sometimes keep the same gear for years and years and years, look at Archer Zerbe, for example, uh, over time they will adjust and get used to it. Yeah, I think Braden Holtby, if I'm not mistaken, was using the same chest protector from when he played junior. Yeah. And, and he had to switch over now because of the new configuration. And the craziest thing that he told me was even though the equipment's smaller, it actually was affecting his sight lines because the dimensions were different, so it made the equipment bunch up in different ways and actually like would get in the way of his athleticism and, and visibility of the puck even though it's small. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah, crazy. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, it's, cause it's just because it's tighter to your body, right? So it moves almost like a Halloween costume. It's like more boxy and moves. Or a cheap Halloween costume. <laughs> <laughs> Time for the mailbag. First question is from Ben Thielman. If you were Brad Trilliving, GM of the Calgary Flames, what would you do with the team's goaltending? Can anything be done? Sergei Bobrovsky. Ooh. Yes, that's my bold stance here. Yeah, I mean, the Calgary Flames, they have so many weapons outside of the crease, and I, I really think that you know they're, they're beginning to enter that window based on where all their guys are, Goudreau and Monaghan, and then obviously Giordano and Hannafin and Brody on the back end, all these good guys, you know, Matthew Kachuk. But they need to have that consistency in the crease. And with Sergei Bobrovsky, say what you will about what he's been doing in Columbus this season, but we know what the upside is with Bob. And he's a Vesna winner. And if Calgary can make that trade, we know that Bobrovsky's not coming back to Columbus uh, once his contract ends. I think you need to make that good deal now and salvage this season if you're Calgary because you do have the horses uh, up front. You have great skaters. It's just a matter of finding consistency in that crease. And if you look at their system right now, like the kids in Stockton are not killing it. 
They are struggling. So it's not a matter of just bringing up John Gillies. Um, you need someone right now if you're going to be a serious contender in the West, and I think Bobrovsky would be a great option. Columbus is in first place in the Metro Division. If, if I mean, that's hard to believe, but they today? are. Yeah, 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 today they are. Just like we uh, predicted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I, I don't think that they're going to be able to get him this year. I mean, they may be able to sign him in the summer as an mm. unrestricted free agent, and they could they could pull out all the stops to do that. But I, I don't think I don't think Bobrovsky's going anywhere. I think what Columbus is going to do is with both of those guys, with Panarin and Bobrovsky, is they're going to see how far they can take them. And then, and then it's, okay, it's probably, you know, thanks and see you later. Yep. Mm -hmm. And you're probably right, based on at least what I've said it before uh, on the show and the podcast, some people close to the situation told me that, that they're going to dig their heels in Columbus yep. as a team and say, no, we want to win. Even if we lose them, we're going to have to keep Panarin and Bobrovsky all year. So I still believe that's going to happen unless there's a, you know, a major falling out or rift between Panarin or Brovsky and the Blue Jackets. So mm. there you go. Uh, next question is from, it sounds like a wrestler, Sean Visceral Brady. <laughs> uh, and Sean asks, just are the New Jersey Devils screwed? I'll, I'll answer this one first because okay. I want to reassure you, Sean. Um, yes and no. Yeah. They, they might be screwed in the short term, but that's okay. And that is exactly why Ray Shiro did so little in the offseason, and I complimented him throughout the summer on it because he was realistic about his team. He understands this is a long process, and he didn't get overexcited over the earlier-than-expected playoff berth. And to me, the Devils are a team. They probably need another elite piece. They would be probably helped by finishing low and getting a top-five draft pick again, mm -hmm, maybe, maybe adding a defenseman to the lineup. So I don't even think it's the worst thing for the Devils if they have a down year. And I, I personally believe that Shiro understands that and believed that all summer, which is why he didn't go crazy making any uh, exotic signings. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if they hadn't surprised everybody last year, right? Mm -hmm. If they had finished bottom three in the Eastern Conference, nobody would have been surprised and it would have been business as usual. I mean, now, I mean, they're dead last in the East right now. And, and, and it's getting to that point in the season where... It's kind of, it's getting harder to, like, Florida just won five games in a row, and they're still four points out of a playoff spot. It's getting to that point in the season where it's going to be harder to make that charge and, yeah. and, and, and gain those points that you need. So, so in the short term, you're right, Matt, they may be screwed in the short term because they are in last place in the Eastern Conference and they've, they haven't, you know, had the results this year. Um, but I, we're not even having this conversation if they didn't, if they didn't overachieve last year and set such a high bar. I mean, my, one of my hot takes at the beginning of the year was that uh, the Islanders were going to usurp the Devils as a playoff team, and right now it's looking like that, so uh, you're welcome. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> last year was the blip year. you got to keep just going on this path, accruing a lot of good young talent. And I mean, imagine if they won the, the Jack Hughes sweepstakes. Nico Heischer and Jack Hughes as your top two centers Ooh. for the next decade? That'd be hot. That yeah. would be. Go that for would it. Be it. Hot AF, as the kids say, or don't say. And our next question comes from Jordan at Jordan Sampson. And Jordan says, assuming Rick Nash's health improves and he can come back, what team do you see needing him and why? Ooh. I'm feeling the Pittsburgh Penguins because mm -hmm. uh. we know this is a team that seems like they're always hurting for depth. The fact that they keep trying to shoehorn Daniel Sprong into relevance and then he keeps, keeps <laughs> getting demoted again on the depth chart, tells me that they really do need a, a boost on the wings. Uh, and I think it's pretty clear in the way Jim Rutherford has spoken recently. He's unhappy with the way this team is, is heading. Um, and I think this, there's a general understanding that 
especially when we're seeing what's happening to Chicago and LA, that Pittsburgh is getting closer to that cliff as well. It's just it's the price you pay for years of contention, trading away your youth. Eventually, the bottom's going to fall out. Pittsburgh's not there yet, but they're getting closer. So to me, they have to continue going for broke. And to me, a Rick Nash signing might be the type of move you make. It's a short-term ad, and I think that's just what Pittsburgh needs. William Nylander, oh. right winger. Yeah. Rick Nash, right winger. Right winger. But what do you what do you get, what do you give up to get William Nylander if you're Pittsburgh? What does Pittsburgh? No, no, no I'm no, not no, no, saying no. that. I'm saying Sign forget Rick about Nash forget about Rick Nash. Have Rick Nash replace William Nylander oh, this yeah. year in your lineup. Yeah. So you you don't worry about what we talked about. <laughs> I'm sorry. It took me a while. The gears had to turn for that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I knew I knew I smelled something burning. Anyways. <laughs> anyways. No. I. I what, what, what we were talking about earlier in terms of the William Nylander, do you keep him? Do you freeze him out? Okay, so, I mean, we have a difference of opinion on whether or not they need to have him in their lineup this year. So let's say you don't sign him and you just say, okay, well, go off and play in the KHL for the rest of this year, Switzerland or Sweden, wherever you, wherever you want to play. And Rick Nash returns to some, some decent health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's a, he's a Toronto kid. That's right. He would... I'm sure he would play uh, for a cup contending team in his hometown for like a million bucks. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, or yeah. or maybe a little more, but but it wouldn't throw the salary salary out of ca- out of whack. They would have that short term fix that you talked about, the one year thing. Sign him for the rest of this year. Uh, I think I think Toronto would be a good place, assuming he can come back to health. Um, you know, this is a fast team. He's not a fast player. Even if he were 100% tip-top shape, he's not a fast player. He, he's, you know, I mean, I think the expectation level would be diminished with this guy. Mm. But it, could you not see him being the guy that would score an overtime goal in Game 7 of this first round when you're mucking through the first round and people yeah, are wondering yeah, whether or not you're going to be that team that takes that step back before you can take a step forward? Mm-hmm. You know, Rick Nash might be that guy that scores the overtime goal in Game 7 of the first round yeah and it's funny I, I was thinking Toronto too because if you look at Rick Nash's career I mean obviously it's hanging in the balance right now he might be done with hockey but if he does have a little more in the tank if he does think he can push his body for one more season where better to do it than close to home where you have a nice support network and like you said you, you know I mean the idea of playing for the Leafs as a, a Toronto area kid it's just like it, it's an easy fit yeah. And in the short term, like a big body like Nash and with Austin Matthews, like just like the puck protection alone. I know he doesn't have the speed right, of right, Matthews, right. but that's what Kasperi Kapanen well, is for. I, he goes and gets the puck, and then you play that just like down low game. Like right. that would be kind of fun yeah, in the short term. And, and plus, I mean, like what have they lacked in the playoffs the last couple of years? They've lacked the size and the yeah. physical presence. You know, because they've gotten knocked around by bigger, stronger teams in the first mm-hmm. round of the playoffs the last couple of years. You know, Rick Nash might address something like that. Yeah. So Very interesting. Okay. Well, that is it for this week, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. And please go to thehockeynews.com to learn more about becoming a member.